0: You're listening to Startups for Good, where we explore high growth and high values ventures. I am your host, Miles Lassiter, co-founder and CEO of Purpose Built, a venture studio focused on human potential. Listen to our podcast to hear stories of entrepreneurs. Listen to be inspired to be a founder or to work for a startup. Listen to be part of a community that believes startups can be a force for good. On today's episode, I speak with Alex Lofton, who's the president and co-founder of Landed. He's worked at numerous social enterprises and technology startups. He's a native of Washington State and worked as a member of Barack Obama's field team, managing hundreds of paid staff who organized thousands of volunteers for the then-Senator's successful presidential primary and general election campaigns. He served as the founding regional director of Obama for America the political mobilization wing of the Democratic National Committee until 2010. And he started in real estate at the developer for, for a city. He holds a BA from Northwestern University and an MBA from the Stanford Graduate School of Business. Landed offers essential professionals help with their home down payment. And they do that in exchange for a share of the appreciation in the value of the home. But they also share in any losses if they come. So, it's different than getting a loan where you have to pay it back, whether the value of your home goes up or down. They are buying a piece of equity in your home, and therefore it's called shared equity. The company has helped people with 750 million plus of home purchases. They've raised a Series B from venture capitalists, and a host of other investors have invested in their property fund, which he talks about. They have approximately 100 employees, and we'll dive in. To topics such as what are the ingredients to know it's time to start a business, to start a startup, what he's learned from politics and brought into startups, more about the details of the housing market and the details of their product, as well as how to welcome emotions into the workplace and use them for higher productivity. I think you'll enjoy this, so please stay tuned. A quick note, the sound quality is not as good as we would hope, but the content is well worth it, so we hope you will listen to the end. Alex, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. So I've been wondering, why is housing so expensive?
1: Yikes. Small question. Uh, Oh man. There's too many, there's a whole bunch of reasons why housing is so expensive. Um, I mean, one of the biggest reasons is that we made a decision in, in this country and in many countries around the world eons ago that land isn't just a, that we have to live on and work out work on and it's something that we invest in it's something that we put our a lot of value in and we hope that if that value grows over time and if something is both something we invest in and that we need to live that it becomes really really valuable i think something's really really valuable over time it becomes very very expensive we add on to that you know more and more people existing in the world and wanting to live and needing to live and the same places, and so density becomes a thing. And, and now we're more and more, climate is moving us in certain places, and moving us out of other places. There's just a whole lot of pressures on this really, really limited thing called land that we all absolutely need. And that has just continues to drive up prices.
0: Yeah, I thought that we should be building more.
1: You and me both. <laughs> we absolutely need to be building more. Sad thing is, it just came off of a conference It's really, it's really tough to build, especially in the U.S. for a lot of different reasons. Sometimes regulatory, um, sometimes NIMBYism, people just don't want it to be built. Um, Sometimes it's, and a lot of times right now, reality is there's not a lot of labor. There's not a lot of materials. uh, Supply chains are all over the place. All these factors make it really, really, really hard to get anything built. Uh, Let alone this, you know, going back to the original point made, you know, people need, it's an investable product and people want to see a certain return out of it and has. you know, that puts a lot of pressures and limitations on what has to be true before it can be built. And if it's too expensive, it won't be built. And that's kind of, you know, a situation we find ourselves
0: in. So Atlanta, you're helping people afford this expensive asset. We are helping
1: teachers, nurses, firefighters, folks we say are essential professionals, people who uphold us every single day in our communities that we need to have in order to have thriving uh, cities and thriving communities, uh, helping them build financial security and starting with buying homes. Um, and we focus on the folks who have maybe the income to afford a month to month of rent, but not enough for that and saving for a down payment. They don't have the wealth front to get into the housing market. So we're helping people overcome that down payment hurdle by offering a shared appreciation uh, down payment
0: product. And when did you find the mission in in the company's development?
1: We defined our mission a few months into initially getting really excited about the idea that uh, of democratizing tools of high finance for the average person. My co-founder and I met all at business school and um, I got really excited while sitting an intro to finance class. I, I don't have, I do not have a finance background. My co-founder does, but I, do, I don't. And I, I was shocked. <laughs> I was shocked that I, this is such an overeducated millennial I hadn't really appreciated or knew or thought about the concept of diversification until I was sitting in an to finance class. And I come from middle class background. My mom was a fourth grade school teacher, dad, social worker, you know, money was always tight, but uh, it wasn't until they got a home from my grandmother, when she died and passed along, that's when things really changed financially for my family. And if you're in that kind of situation, you don't think about things like diversifying your money to grow your wealth. Most people are just trying to Get enough money to buy a home, and I got really excited about the idea that there could be tools out there that people could use to um, better match their their economic reality. And one of those tools is shared appreciation or shared ownership or co ownership that allows you to kind of spread out and share risk rather than having to be the sole person that takes on a mortgage. You can actually get help to take on a mortgage and stair step your way into ownership. And that's what I wanted to build for people. And after, once we got started, once after getting excited about that concept. Of shared appreciation about who is the most needing of this and we find this the most valuable and it's these essential professionals and these people who have relatively stable jobs and uh, have a relatively stable income that really need set up from help why don't we start there we need to start with these folks that uh, we all care so much about get, provide them with this value and see if it see if it see if it works and that's that's what we've been doing for the last few years
0: and do you think the mission and the types of people that you're serving have helped make a new concept more palatable to other market participants? I think
1: anything in finance comes with a really healthy, and should come with it, a really healthy dose of skepticism. You know, if something is new in a market, and it could, it relates to the entirety of your life savings, you might want to take a beat. You might be wondering what, what is this thing? Who's behind it? How does it work? And for you know, decades now, if your family was allowed to build wealth, and if your family was allowed to purchase homes, which let's remember, not everybody in the United States has been, especially if you're black, but if you were allowed to, there's a certain way in which you you typically were able to buy a home. Either homes were so cheap that it didn't take much to save and you could then buy one, or and or you got money from the bank of mom and dad to get you started, and so that's the way people have been been purchasing homes for a while. So there's there's a there's a custom to it. Now when we come into the scene with a new financial product and say, this is a tool that you could use. No one around you has done it before. No one has really heard of this product before. No one has really thought about shared ownership, shared appreciation as a way to buy homes. And so there's, again, a healthy do- dose of skepticism. And so with that, you need someone to do, your, to do the due diligence for you, someone to do the, 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 the research for you. And if you could have uh, your employer or someone who you trust, some institution you trust, maybe your union, take a look at what this is and then share the information with you about it, it then becomes something you might be more willing to look at and able to look at because someone's done some due diligence on the product for you. And that's what I think that it is true that kind of focusing in on partnership with specific employers, specific institutions that relate to maybe the profession that you're in does accelerate. The adoption of new tools that need to exist given the new the reality of the market that we're in
0: today. Now you've raised impact capital or even maybe charitable capital. Is that required because it's new, or because there's lower than expected returns?
1: The Atlanta started a land down payment program. Started, we partnered with institutions that were excited about the impact that we could create on top of the returns that we proposed or we modeled what it would would Exist and uh, largely because those, if you don't, if you if you have something new to prove, you have to do something new that doesn't have a lot of history. Then, if you're only going to focus on returns, then investors actually want a lot more, want to take a lot more in the in the exchange because it's more risk from their point of view. It's unproven; they're taking more risk. You got to give more economics up. So there's a strong logic to that, and and yet from the beginning we were pretty convinced, especially when we had a conversation have had many conversations with much of what you know the, the biggest capital holders in the world and providers in the world your pension fund your largest pension funds largest largest sovereign wealth funds et cetera and we talked to them about what would you what kind of price would you Need to see from a product. What kind of returns do you need to see from a product like this? They gave us a number, and that number is quite different, much lower than the number your earliest investors are going to ask for when a product is new. And we didn't want to pass that difference, that risk cost, onto customers. We just didn't feel if we did that, we didn't feel like our product was going to be that great. It was wasn't going to be a deal that I personally would want to take. And if it's not going to be a deal I want to take, I don't want to create it. So we needed to find partners who could understand that long-term vision. Of kind of getting over the chicken or the egg problem that happens when you build something new to take on that risk, eat a little bit of that risk cost because they cared about the mission and help us prove that this product works, it's valuable, and it's priced well um, even before we get to the point of being a mature, ha- having having maturity. And so that's where impact capital has been really important on our end. Is it's been the risk capital that we needed that didn't, that chose not to pass that cost on to consumers, but kind of held that risk themselves uh, so that we can continue to show that this is a investable product and bring more and more traditional investors along, uh, along for the ride.
0: That's such a great use of charitable or impact capital. I wish more foundations and other institutions like that would take real risk in their investment side of the house.
1: I totally agree with you. There's so much opportunity for philanthropy and impact capital to think creatively and in a variety of ways, how they could operate, how they could support programs. Not always, it's not only granting capital and it's not only making money with no risk. Actually, what the middle ground here is putting money to work as any investor would, but looking at what percentage you're, you're adding to the cost of the, of the investment product that is solely based off of startup risk or unknown risk and eating that, taking that and saying, that's the part that we're gonna take. And so we're gonna reduce the cost of this capital by X amount because we're gonna take on the risk. We're gonna charge a certain amount that we think if this was to work and be mature and be in a uh, truly there be a market for that price be, let's keep it at that amount. Because that's just as important. You need to prove, you know, if it was too, if the capital is too cheap, it's never gonna be picked up by the traditional markets and therefore it won't be scaled. And that's a problem, but how do we keep it at that price that could be seen as a fair price between the end consumer and the investor, uh, but we'll eat the, we'll eat the risk the risk cap, uh, the risk percentage and help scale a model. That's, I think we need to see a lot more of that.
0: And as you ladder up from those high risk, high mission oriented investors to the lower risk investors who may not have that explicit mission mandate, how do you have to build the company or communicate differently to be successful?
1: I don't think you need to. Actually, I think when you stay the course. I think that's where companies get you get a problem is you feel like you need to adjust yourself because you know because you have different maybe a different set of investors. I think mean, the ability to scale to this to the level of impact that you want to have is completely dependent on having enough money in our for our down payment program to do that. And so, our you know attracting investment capital is extremely important, and delivering on their expectations of their return needs is extremely important, especially, you know, some some of our investors invest the money of teachers' pension funds. So I don't want to mess with that. I don't want to mess that up. I also want to make sure that we're doing right by those teacher pension funds. And so we got to meet their needs in order to to, to, to attract the capital necessary to expand the program and expand the impact and at the same time you're not going to have a successful program you're not going to have people wanting to use your product you're not going to have people trusting your brand if you don't stay consistent the mission that you have and stay consistent to the to the values they have one of our core values is to find what's fair and that really a big part of that externally is finding what's fair between our investors and our and our consumers customers. And so if you start to mess with the with a good thing, uh, you could mess the whole thing up. So just because you have a new set of investors doesn't mean you need to change who you are, what you are, what you're trying to do. Cuz if you do, you mess up the formula of what's working. So the the mission and and the um, ability to attract the and, and and meet the needs of the capital that allows you to expand your impact or finding that keeping that balance is extremely important
0: and as you're bringing this new product to market any advice for other founders in a regulated market about how to bring the regulators along i
1: think that when you're working in a regulated market especially when you're building something that has for any one individual could be the absolute life changer for good or or for bad meaning, if you're working with somebody's a financial transaction that's involving their entire life savings, if that goes awry, that's not the same as you know having a ride ride hailing app that uh, if you go you know pick somebody up and you and you go down the wrong street and get dropped off the wrong place, you know, it's not it's not a great experience but it's not the end of the world. You, you can go really really south for an individual if if you're not careful when you're when you're dealing in in something like. Home buy, and home purchase, and, and dealing with so much money, and so it's really important to recognize that the role of regulators in spaces like this, for transactions at this scale, at this level, are meant are, are there for good reason. Because without a playing field that is somewhat fair, monitored, uh, designed to balance the interests of all, all the parties involved, you can imagine that we live in a world where consumers are really screwed over oftentimes by by bad actors. And so the role of regulators is super important and respecting that role and seeing that role as a critical component of the ecosystem to make the whole ecosystem work. And then approaching that, that constituent, that regulator in in a way that honors their role in the ecosystem is really, really key. So engaging proactively, engaging, before it becomes a problem before you are asking for something before you're trying to push for your own interest to really understand what their goals are what their what the constituencies they have to respond to what they care about what they're balancing and then try to incorporate that into your product design your marketing design sales design is critical they're not an afterthought they're not not an entity to be to be fought with it's an entity to, that has a role in in creating the ecosystem that makes your company successful and you need to engage with
0: them in the appropriate way. Do You think your background in politics helps you in that regard or otherwise in startup?
1: My experience in politics, I was a, just, I, I was always in something called field, which is kind of in business speak is kind of where business, where, where marketing meets sales, kind of some business development. And what I learned from that is the importance of enrolling people in what you do. I, I brand my, I, I talk about myself as an enroller. I, I get really excited about something. I just want to enroll everybody around me in it. And I think that's really important. Uh, that's a really important lesson for me from the from the work I did in politics. And so that piece about wanting to enroll people in a new idea that I think should exist in the world has served me really well personally as, a, as, a, as, a, as, an, as an individual contributor uh, when starting up a new idea. And as the idea grows and as it becomes more established, it continues to be a function that's really helpful in, in enrolling specific specific people that you need at specific times to continue to move your your work forward. So yeah, I, d- I definitely think that the the work of campaigns, especially, has helped me understand the importance of galvanizing different people with different interests and different resources together towards a common goal. You, that's how you win a campaign, and I think that that's. How you win in, in startup land
0: and moving from that world to entrepreneurship was business school the strategy to make that bridge. Funny
1: story, business school. When I was eight years old, it was the first time that my family owned a color printer at home, it was one of those printers that you put you know the, the old school ink in the, the the compartment that would just make a ton of noise and you printed it. And the very first thing I did when we got our printer was go. To Get the CD ROM out of the encyclopedia, put it in, looked up Harvard Business School, found a picture of it, and printed it out. <laughs> my parents first, my mom saw this, I put it next to my bed, bedside. My mom saw this. The first reaction was, What are you doing? Ink is so expensive. Why the heck did you print that print picture out? We don't we can't just print print pictures. Oh, we can't, ink is really expensive. The second was why Harvard Business School? And honestly, I don't really know why I did that, except that I knew that the, the world of building organizations, building organizations in our economic system, always fascinated me. and seeing what uh, they could produce or products that they, they create, how you, how you go about doing that always fascinated me. And fast forward, after working in politics and whatnot, I recognized that but I, I wanted to take some time out to study how organizations are formed and how they operate. I hadn't done in the formal sense. And I want to do it in the context of, of money, because money, I hadn't come to recognize the power and influence of money and wanted to understand how to how to speak the language of money and how to leverage the tools of building wealth and money to kind of form the world more in my the way I would like to see the world exist. So I felt that business school is a great place for that, to take that pause reflection moment learning moment and being around other people, meeting people who are, who are, who are from different industries and different perspectives. Again, different people with different interests coming together. uh, that was what business school was for me. That's where I met my my business school, my business partner, uh, Jonathan, my head CEO and my co-founder. And so, yeah, I think it really was that, that pivot moment, that moment to reflect and to pull different, different perspectives together to achieve something new.
0: A lifelong dream. That's wonderful. I I want to hear more about meeting your co-founder and deciding to work together. But first, I just have to say, you'd said so much there, but the thing that stuck with me is your mother saying, "Why do you print that in color? That's so expensive." <laughs> I find myself saying the same thing to kids. So I now I feel feel really old, I guess. It's been been happening for ages. Yeah, but um yeah, crazy. please tell us more about how you met Jonathan, when you guys decided to work together?
1: First thing I'll say is, for me personally, one of the best things about building landed has been um, forming a deep relationship with with Jonathan, my co-founder. And I think the way that that's manifested and 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 been such a great partnership to date used to be is, the fact that we're very different, we're very complementary, both in our thinking and the thinking the preferences, thinking preferences, as well as kind of just our, our lived experience, professional experiences, have been very complimentary. I'm the sales marketing PD guy. You know, he's the product engineer, problem solving guy. It really, it really fits together. And but, but, but the commonality, the thing that's the same for us uh, is a set of values, values of how we like to operate on a daily basis, set of values that we share about the way that we think the world needs to go to be productive for as many people as possible for as long as possible. Those values are what centered, centered us when we first got started around the, the excitement that we had for shared equity and its, and its p- impact potential, the excitement around the kind of company we wanted to build the kind of culture we wanted to build in our company. And so the that values piece is what drew us together. I think first, we were classmates first, friends first. We actually, we met first a week before business school started. And I remember we were in a s- circle about eight or 10 people chatting all, you know, you're meeting these people for the first time, where are you from? What are you interested in? What do you do, et cetera. And he and I, in that, while we were in that circle, realized we were really interested in cities. and what makes them tick? What's going to make them successful in the future? How are we going to, well, you know, the, the problems and them? how do you, how do, what are creative solutions around those problems? And we started going on and on and on about back and forth that, you know, this, this top cities and, and, and the, the opportunity to, to make them better. And then a few minutes later, I looked up and realized the circle had gone from eight or 10 down to two. I think maybe we were the only people in that circle that wanted to nerd out that much about uh, urban urban issues and urban opportunities. But from that moment, realized and from that conversation, realized we had a very similar set of interests, similar set of values that we, we you know, we, we saw the world through. And I think that stuck first, you know, that, that, that manifests first as a friendship and then into a partnership as we realized that we're both thinking about this question of how are people going to afford our cities in the long run, especially teachers, nurses, firefighters. We were also thinking about where, what are the what's going to happen as um, institutional capital is looking for new places to invest, new places to go. What's going to happen to the real estate market, the residential real estate market, as that continues to unfold? What are the tools that exist that could could be a could be a marriage between the interests of home buyers and the interests of uh, investors? And at that point in time, realize, hey, we have a very similar idea. And I always said I didn't want to be a part of a startup. I didn't want to start a company. I've been a part of startups, they're they're so hard. You know, maybe it's my time to go back to, to go to a big organization. But the only way I'd start a company coming out of business school is three things happen. One, I found a co-founder that I really wanted to work with and can trust and I shared a set of values. Check. There's an idea that I could get super excited about and that co-founder had to be equally excited about. Check. And a third was I had a life partner who would be okay with me basically not making any money and jumping into something like this uh, to take a risk out of right, right after taking out a bunch of student debt. And luckily my husband, Johnny, totally cool with it so check and we jumped jumped into uh starting landed jonathan and i back in 2015
0: i love your checklist for when it's time to start a company you framed it as a i won't do this unless," but it almost seems like you went out and made those things true
1: well you know your subconscious much stronger than you realize
0: (laughs) so what is the secret to having a supportive partner when you're not going to be making a lot of money in early days at a startup. Any tips for others?
1: I mean, I don't know if it's so much of a tip. So one of it's just recognizing the fortune that I have and the and, some, and a lot of us have who get to start startups is we uh, may know people or have people in our lives who could help us on the practical things. I mean, if you're in a position where you're thinking about the, you know, where the next meal is going to come from or where your next rent paycheck is going to come from and that if you don't have that, you're, completely sol you're not in a mindset to be able to be your most creative self you're probably in a space of desperation now desperation sometimes can breed creativity and, and new opportunity but that kind of desperation for long is actually just a lot of stress and trauma so just want to take a beat to recognize that you know that is the first layer is just having the the, the, the privilege and you know my my network my community not only my life partner but my parents i've been very very my, my aunts, my uncles, you know, have been very supportive in making sure that I have the opportunities that every opportunity afforded me that they, that they could, could help me access. And that's no different here. I mean, I think the, the trick here is if you, you can find, if you find yourself in that type of privileged position where you have people around you who can take who you feel will support you, even if the worst happens, you got to take advantage of that opportunity. You, you, you have to recognize your privilege and then you need to take advantage of it to create, to create something the world needs. And that if someone else who had your opportunity would take, you should take it. So I I, I don't, I guess it's not really a lot of advice. It's just like recognition that if you're in that kind of position, anywhere near that kind of position, you have all the stability you need, even if it's scary, fear of failure is super real, but that you can usually work through with a therapist, but. Like what's hard to work through is if you don't have that have some of those fundamental support networks in place, it's really hard to get started. So if you have it, you have pretty much what you need to, to get going.
0: Aside from therapy, how do you handle the fear? I, I've, I've tried my
1: best to create a work environment and an environment that I operate in on a daily basis where talking about the fear of the unknown or the fear of failure or fear generally isn't a bad thing. Isn't something to be avoided, but is instead something to build a relationship with others around. Recognize that we all might be thinking that, and we all might be feeling that. And that that feeling is there, and it's okay, and it's just a feeling. We're gonna create space for that feeling, but then we're gonna be able, through that creating space, also continue to operate alongside that feeling. You just recognize again, it's a feeling. It's not. It's not necessarily even manifest or real. It's, you know, external from us. It's just something internal. And that that's something we're always having to do is is kind of recognize our emotions, but also manage through our emotions and create a space where where that type of um, recognition of emotions, sharing emotional data uh, with each other, isn't something that's taboo or, or too personal or not to be, not to be named that instead naming it and having it be a part of a, a, a relationship we have with each other as a group working towards something that's never been created before and very risky, et cetera, that that actually helps us bond as a team, helps us move forward. So I think creating the conditions creating an environment for that. And we did that through, we've done that kind of systematically in the past. through something we called internal dynamics. So we just created space to, on a regular basis, share with each other, action, impact, feedback, or different things that we each did or, or experienced, even external from from the group um, was impacting us a certain way so that uh, emotionally, so that people understood that and could either adjust behavior or just recognize it and have more context for the other people in the room so they could understand maybe why sometimes I'm up and sometimes I'm down and vice versa. And that kind of, creating that kind of condition early on for a group of hardworking individuals who are going to face a lot of unknowns uh, made the, safe, the space a little bit safer, a little bit tighter. Help this run a little faster.
0: Higher performance by embracing and welcoming emotions into the workplace. That's right. That's right. So, you also were talking about those that are struggling to make ends meet. It might be harder to do a startup. And I'm wondering, with inflation and so much uncertainty in the world, like what does that mean for your customers and for the company?
1: It's been really interesting over the last several weeks and months here as conditions around affordability have gotten even more. City, or especially for middle-class folks, or or people who are you know, maybe employed in stable employment but still finding it hard to make ends meet, or are worried about the future, our value proposition has gotten even stronger for folks. We're seeing even more of a demand for what we offer than we saw before. This there's so so number one there's there's more and more people who see the value that we're trying to provide and want to find a way to partner and work with our down payment program and whatever we can offer them. same time, you know higher prices, continued limited demand, make it make it hard even harder to afford what you may what people may want, right? And so um, the effectiveness for any one individual of even with down payment support, can you actually find the house that you want? It's the question is real. People are. Part of our job is to be there through the ups and downs. It is trying to find the the, the home that you want, but it does take usually people multiple offers to get that home that they want, and, and it takes a lot of time. and And so, I think the squeeze is felt even more. It makes again the value prop stronger, but at the same time, it you know affordability is is worse for people now than it was several months ago. And so, I think it just points to the fact that it needs to not only be the kinds of solutions we're building. But there needs to be a lot more solutions outside of landed to make this work, especially in the world of building more housing and paying people more money or finding ways to make things more affordable. It's just super important.
0: I'm curious, is landed long real estate? Meaning, does the company financially succeed better? Real estate prices go up.
1: Yeah, you can think of landed as two parts. There's landed Inc., which is an operating company, which is actually a real estate brokerage. That's the thing that our venture capital investors invest in. That's the thing that pays all of our employees. That piece makes money every time we are able to help someone purchase a home. We partner them with a real estate agent. They might use our joint venture lending business. They might use one of our other financial products that we're building and continuing to release that that transaction is what fuels our business. And that's separate from the down payment program that has a set of investors who who want to invest in real estate and who provide the capital for the down payment program. And then we essentially just broker the relationship between the individual who wants to buy a home and that investor. And that's what makes the down payment program work. And so, I doesn't necessarily make more money when home prices go up uh, over time because that's not the primary way we make money as investors. We don't make, that's not our primary way. Our primary way to make money is not that investment, it's through the Transact, just getting people into homes. And so if home prices keep going up and yet people don't have, and affordability becomes a harder, you know, bigger, bigger challenge, even with the help of our down payment program, that can make it harder and harder for people to transact, which makes it harder and harder to grow our business. So I would argue that, no, it's better to have uh, homes be more affordable so people can get into them to help us continue to build a home, Build, sorry, to build a company. I do think that on the investment product side home price appreciation is a component an important component of why someone would invest in this product uh, but i think i think everybody's interested in making sure that home price appreciation is at a sustainable rate so it continues to be an economy that functions so people continue to can, can continue to participate in it and so uh yes you make more money as home price appreciation goes up but you want it to be at a rate that is sustainable and along. Is, is, is long-term healthy for the economy so that this cycle that we've built that is our home ownership you know system in this country can continue on forward but if it's out of if it's out of whack and the home price appreciation is going way too high and you're making plenty of money in the short term you might be breaking your long-term abilities to make money and so where we say here at Atlanta that long-term greed is much better than short-term greed meaning think in the long run about how you can make sure the system survives and is is uh, adaptable, and that means you need to think about all the players that are in it and make it a, a, uh, accessible for all players, including consumers, not just investors. If you think only short-term, you're gonna break the thing and then you're not gonna have the ability to make, you know, make, a lot, make value in the long run, and that's not good for anybody.
0: Long-term, green. I like it. What's the next product for Landed? Is it cash out, shared equity deal, like you'll, some of your competitors offer or something else? We're
1: looking at it all. I think our our anchor, our north star here is what products will help our essential professionals, our customers build financial security. And the roof that's our that's our you know our, our moonshot and the current roof shot here is um, focusing on home ownership and continue to help people purchase homes, continue to help people once once they're in a home. So I think that gives us a lot of different pathways that we're we're, we're looking at that involve everything having home equity, what do you do when you already have home equity and don't want to unlock that? What do you do when you're how do you make the a, a transition, the transaction I should say? How do you make the transaction even smoother and more user-friendly? How do you make sure that how do you take advantage of the relationships that you have with your customer when they're have a bajillion questions and have a bajillion needs? How do you help meet those needs and those questions once they become home buyers in an efficient way that connect them to good great products that then, you know, by providing that value you can be compensated. You know, there's a lot of different ways in which we could see products going. And so we're looking at that right now though, we have a great we have a great product in our down payment program. And we have only launched in a relatively small number of geographies and have a have only taken a dent in the number of uh, essential professionals we could we can help. And we're really focused on just making sure that our existing customer set knows uh, our existing potential customer set knows of our existing products and get that into the hands of those folks first before we worry too much about the next, um, expanding that next product set. But we are looking at all the different ways in which we can help essential professionals uh, in the long run build financial security, no matter where they are in their journey.
0: So expanding geography, expanding professions, that's more of a priority. Are you restricted at all by your investors to profession or geography?
1: One of the ways that we've been able to attract capital and we attracted investment capital on down payment program early on is being um, focused in where and how we were going to deploy that capital. And that primarily meant uh, a focus in two ways. One, who the consumer uh, works for and what kind of job prospect they have and stability and job that they have. Uh, So that's why our investors are really excited about folks who work in these industries that are where their jobs usually remain even in down cycles in the economy and many of them have pension funds i'm sorry pensions many of them have even unions that help ensure more stability in their jobs so there is kind of the employment type criteria where our investors and, and us kind of agreed on and then the other part the other part of the buy box as they call it was where the money was going to go ge- geographically and got started investors were keen to have this start in markets where the challenge of affordability was the most acute because that's where demand was predicted to be highest so your most expensive markets plus these markets are ones that are less volatile so san francisco seattle etc these are places where in the long run home price appreciation has been positive everywhere has ups and downs but it has maybe less volatility than you saw maybe in some other markets and so over time, as we've brought on new capital partners, some of those really tight buy boxes have expanded out. And so today, given the change in uh, affordability across all geographies, meaning it's just as hard to, uh, relatively, but it's it's hard to buy a home in Spokane, Washington, as is Seattle, Washington, means that there's a lot more places where something like a down payment program is relevant and can be helpful. So that ge- geography recently has expanded from a uh, so, only focusing on about thirteen major, thirteen fourteen major metro areas to one hundred and eighty plus metro areas across the U.S. and growing. So, we truly are uh, focused on helping any essential professional anywhere in the country um, that needs the help. And then, on the other, on the flip side, our essential professional focus remains. I mean, we really do kind of focus on helping anybody in education, anybody in healthcare. Anybody who works in the public sector broadly, but for a while that might have been a little—that was a little more restrictive on what roles in those industries we could serve. And now we really can serve pretty much anybody who gets their paycheck from an institution in those spaces. So there's a lot more uh, white space to play with, which makes it a lot easier to grow as a company. Because when you are limited, your capital limits you and where you can grow and how you can grow. It makes it a little bit harder to get it to everyone as quickly as possible. Now we're a, we're in a place where we can do that. So really excited. It's so definitely an inflection moment for us. Really excited to be able to take Landed's down payment program to kind of any, to any geography across the U.S. And, and help folks in these key key categories.
0: Wow, that's wonderful. How many people have you reached? What numbers can you share about the size of the company or customer base?
1: For sure. Yeah, so we've, we've helped. We're approaching about three quarters of a billion dollars of transactions happen um, helping teachers, nurses, firefighters, et cetera, purchase homes worth that much money, which is really exciting. We're excited to kind of continue to see the uh, clip of that, the, that volume of home purchase be made, um, continue to go forward, go up and up and up. You know, as a company, we're about hundred folks, Series B uh, venture-backed uh, company, and we are uh, have team members across the entire U.S., primarily focused in San Francisco, Denver, and Seattle, and we. You know, I, I think what's what's really exciting is that it's about sixty-eight percent of our home buyers that we've helped are first-time homebuyers. You know, around fifty percent are either BIPOC or and or make below eighty percent of area median income uh, where they live. So, if you know anything about the housing market, let's just say that is not the typical number you see of the of the of the market the the typical standard home buying or home buyer market. It's much Richer and much lighter. And so just seeing that uh, this tool can be used to help increase and democratize who has access to um, home buying is really exciting. you know our our home buyers are span all ages. Some folks are early on in their career and are buying their stronger home. Some are maybe near nearer to retirement age and never been able to own and now they can. Um, but it's a lot of folks, most majority of folks are kind of in the age group where major life events like marriage and kids are. And having them think differently about their long-term housing solutions. So those are yeah, that that's a little bit about the people that we serve and, and looking forward to just really focusing on now increasing that number of, of folks who are able to help on a on a monthly basis purchase homes.
0: Exciting numbers. Thanks for sharing that incredible scale with us. If people want to follow up online, how should they do that?
1: Landed.com, L-A-N-D-E-D.com. Got it all there.
0: Wonderful. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you so much. It was great talking to you today. If you liked what you heard today, be sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast player. And please give us a rating and review. Startups for Good is brought to you by Purpose Built, a venture studio focused on human potential. If you're inspired today and want to reach out, please visit our website, purposebuilt.vc. Thank you.